Good morning. We're going to talk about marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 24 have a lot to say about marriage. But as I was trying to think of, uh, since I've been married almost 50 years, sometimes people ask me, what's the secret? And really the secret is the same, whether you've been married 10 years, 25 years, or 50 years. And I'm going to try to illustrate that secret. Because last week we talked briefly about a covenantable relationship or a covenant marriage. And that's really what makes a difference. Because if you're in a consumer relationship, it's like this one strand of string. You know, when the stress of life comes and different things happen, there, my illustration didn't almost work. It's easy to snap, unless you're getting old and weak like me. The difference is, though, when we have a relationship that involves a covenant, and I'm not just talking about a covenant with each other. That's where we get from Ecclesiastics chapter 4, verse 12, the three strands, when they're tied together and braided, it's hard, very hard to break. And the three strands, I believe, represent the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we think about marriage, it's a hard thing. Perhaps that's why in Verse 1, at least in some translations of chapter 7, Paul starts out by saying it's better not to marry. But that seemed like an unusual verse to pick, to have to be the center focus of a sermon on marriage. So I jumped to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, we're not just talking about sex or sexual intimacy there. What is the duty that we're talking about? What is the duty that Paul's talking about? He's talking about the duty that we have in a covenant. Because when we're talking about a covenant, and that's what makes marriage hard. That's what makes being a Christian hard. Everything we do is supposed to reflect the glory of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 talks about that. Whatever we do, should reflect and be done in the name of Jesus. So how do we go about doing that? Well, in a book uh, written by Lloyd O'Glivy, he uses the phrase, doing what love demands a lot. And I don't think that's necessarily original with him. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, whose husband was killed by the Akuas, she often has used a very similar phrase of just doing what love demands. Well, what does that mean? That means focusing daily, choice by choice, and surrendering to Christ. That choice by choice, day by day, we try to become more like Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that we are to become more and more like our Creator. We're to become more and more like Jesus. In a movie that has been out a few years now called God's Not Dead, there's a subplot in that movie that I really think illustrates the difference between a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship. Of course, the main movie is about this young student who's just started his college years, and he takes on an atheistic uh, philosophy professor to try and prove that God exists. But within that movie, there's another character. And this character is living with a person who's a reporter who has no time for Christians. And the scene that I want to talk about in that movie is this uh, 
young man has gotten reported in the law firm or corporation, I don't remember now exactly what it was, to a very high position. So he invites his girlfriend, and they've been living together for some time now, out to supper to uh, celebrate this great promotion. But during this meal, or right before this meal, she's been to the doctor and discovers she has cancer. And so when they have this great meal at this restaurant together, one of the first things she does is she shares with her boyfriend, I have cancer. And his response basically is, that's tough. And we're through. I'm not signing up for that. That's what you call a consumer relationship. Very cold, very calculated. And when she protests a little bit, he just points out to her, you're just as selfish as I am. You know, you're in this relationship and for what, it's, what it has for you. And it's the same with me. But I'm not signing up for you going through cancer. So we're finished. And then he leaves the restaurant. That's a consumer relationship. That's certainly not a covenantable relationship. Now, I'm not saying that when we have a covenantable relationship that sometimes we don't have to do things that are hard. I have counseled people that have been in a toxic relationship that they need to separate. I've even counseled people that maybe that for the sake of themselves and the safety of their children, maybe they need to get a divorce. And I recognize the scripture said God hates divorce. And sometimes you actually have to cut off all contact with a person for your safety and the safety of the children. In other words, being a Christian spouse and doing what love demands doesn't mean that we don't have to enforce appropriate safe boundaries at times. The more important thing that I want to emphasize is what does a covenant mean? It means that everything we do should bring glory to God. And that our marriage, our Christian biblical marriage, as Robert talked about last week, which involves one man and one woman, needs to reflect the glory of God. And we need to look at our marriage and how we're living our marriage. And is this the way we practice marriage? Is this something that would point someone to God? Well, that's a hard thing. And that's why I think Paul may have started out his letter saying, hey, this is hard. Maybe it's better not to marry. But then he goes on to talk about all the immorality of the world. And sort of, if you just read it through quickly, you might think, well, he's saying, yeah, you go ahead and get married, sort of as a concession that it's a good way to maybe avoid all the sexual temptation that is out there in the world. But obviously, marriage is a lot more than just having sexual intimacy. That's an important part of marriage because God designed sex. But our morality is determined by looking at what the Bible says. And when we look at what the Bible says, whether we're talking about same-sex relationships, whether we're talking about alcohol abuse, whether we're talking about lying, stealing, or cheating. We can't just look at what desire says. We have to look at what the objective standard is. And for us Christians, that's the Bible. And so we have to encourage people completely to surrender to Christ in all areas, including our marriage. And that's why, unfortunately, if you look at the stats, Christian marriages divorce as much, and some studies even say more, than non-Christians. Does that mean that Christian marriage is bad? No. 
What that means, we as selfish humans have a hard time surrendering to Christ. Our Albert Moeller Jr., in a book, uh, he wrote one of the chapters, is a book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And that book goes through and talks about how Christ is supreme over everything, including our desires. And in this particular chapter, he has this quote, We must be the people who cannot talk about anything of significance without acknowledging our absolute dependence on God's revelation, the Bible. So that's our standard. Our standard is to look at what the Bible says. And so many times the Bible is interpreted uh, what? because of our own agendas. So we have to look at it objectively. That's why when we look at one of the other letters that Paul wrote in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, you know, he gets the bad reputation of being a male chauvinist. Because in that chapter, of course, he says, wives, you need to submit to your husbands. But that skips the first part, which says we need to submit to each other. And it ignores the rest of that chapter, chapter 5, where it talks about husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? Paul even answers that question. He gave himself up for the church. He sacrificed everything. And as husbands and wives, we need to be willing to do that for each other. We need to do whatever love demands every day, every choice, to become more like Christ. And so what does that mean to become more like Christ? Well, in a book that we've been using in Sunday School, Search for Significance by Robert McGee, he kind of paraphrases 1 Corinthians chapter 13 which is often read at weddings, you know, the love chapter. But of course, this was not written for a wedding. It was written for a church and for a church to start becoming more Christ-like. So he paraphrases this to help us to have a better understanding of what our Father is like. What is God like? So I'm just going to read his quote. My Father is very patient and kind. My Father is not envious, never boastful. My Father is not arrogant. My Father is never rude, nor is he self-seeking. My father is not quick to take offense. My father keeps no score of wrongs. My father does not gloat over my sins, but is always glad when truth prevails. My father knows no limits to his endurance, no end to his trust. My father is always hopeful and patient. So we, if we do what love demands, we're called to make those choices to become like our father. Put your own name in there. Paul is very patient and kind, or if your name's not Paul, use your name, not mine, and go through those same things. Paul is not envious, never boastful. Paul is not arrogant. Paul is never rude, nor is he self-seeking, and go through there. Can you honestly say that describes you when you put your name in there? That's what we're called to do in marriage, to do what love demands. So that Christ is supreme in everything, including our marriage, so our marriage is a reflection a sacrificial submission that reflects the love of Christ. Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, and Robert referred to that last week, talks about where Christ is talking about marriage. And in this particular area, of course, he's addressing divorce. But in that, he addresses the fact that the two become one flesh. They're no longer one. And don't separate, then, what God has put together. In other words, God's covenant 
is talking about unity. And how do we develop that unity? How do we develop that image of Christ that Genesis 1 talks about that we're created to be? How do we become that one flesh? Well, one of the phrases I've heard is we need to get into that relationship so that when one member cries, the other person is tasting the salt. In other words, we're focused on, not on proving our point, not showing that we're right, in, especially in conflict, but seeking to understand. Seeking to understand the person's feelings, seeking to understand the person's perspective, seeking and love to reflect Christ to that person. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And this life that I live in this body, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's sort of the pole star for our marriage. Not submission, but mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.21. Loving sacrificially. Feeding, caring, and nourishing for each other. And I like the Revised Standard translation of that verse. Ephesians 5.25 where it talks about nourish and cherish. In a marriage relationship, making those choices daily to cherish each other. Telling the other person honestly what you appreciate about that person. Come up with those things. Not just a manufactured list. Look for honest, genuine things that you appreciate. And if you don't happen to be together and you think a thought about your spouse that you appreciate about them, make a note so you share it with them. Send them a text. Otherwise, if you're like me, you'll forget. So we're supposed to leave our mother and father Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 talks about that. And become one flesh to tenderly take care of each other. So how do we do that? How do we live that out? Well, Robertson McQuillan was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. And his wife, Muriel, who had her own speaking program, definitely was a gracious hostess, and a great help to him in his position, came to the, how do I say it, Alzheimer's. She developed Alzheimer's, and her condition began to deteriorate. So he had a choice to make. He could make the choice to place her in an institution because her thinking was getting to the point it wasn't safe to leave her alone. Or he could take early retirement and make it his mission to care for his wife. He chose the latter. And I'm not saying that sometimes you don't have to put people in a care facility. Don't misunderstand me. But he chose the latter because it seemed like when he was present, she was calmer and she was more with her environment. And so he had the opportunity to take early retirement, and he did. And this is what he wrote about his decision. When the time came, the decision was firm. It didn't take any heavy-duty calculation. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and health until death do us part. 
He's talking about his wedding vows. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. She's a delight to me. I don't have to care for her, I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. It's more than keeping promises, more than being fair, however. As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind person she is, the wife I always loved. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. So he decided to become her full-time caregiver. That's covenantable love. That's a relationship that's based on trying to reflect the image of Christ, not just individually, but in your marriage. And that's really what Paul is calling us to do. He's not just saying get married because you can avoid sexual temptation. He's saying get married even though it's hard. It's hard work. Because when you're living with somebody, you're going to realize there's things about you that aren't so pretty, that you may not have realized before. And then you need to learn how to surrender those things graciously to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you need to daily make those choices to do what love demands. That means choosing step by step with each choice you make, minute by minute. If you can't do it by day, just do it minute by minute to try to become more like Christ. That's the challenge that all of us have in our marriage. Whether it's 10 years or 50 years, our marriage should reflect the glory of Christ. And that's what the covenant is all about. If you join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you that even though life can be hard, it's also a delight. But the only way to get through the hard is by surrender to you and letting your love be embraced by us so that we can reflect it more accurately to others, including our spouse. In Jesus' name, amen.